You got it? Okay. 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 <laughs> okay. 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 Can we do like a, re- a rehearse yes. it real quick? Yes. You can this- rehearse it real quick. Yes. Okay. This is Sonia Frontera from soniafrontera.com. And you are listening to Jeff Smith on Vroom Vroom Beer. Whoop, whoop. That was, you know, we don't need to do a take two. That was really good. But if you want, okay. if you want to no, do it again fine. and, and, and no, sound, that's fine. you can make if a you fake voice. Use it. Yeah, no, it's perfect. Ooh, you are. <laughs> Please. <laughs> this is Sonia. I might Frontera. even get a job offering out of this. Uh, yeah, can you imagine? You never know. Okay. I, I'm going to hit stop on this recorder right here. I'll be right back. I won't hear okay. you for a sec. Okay. Are you ready to thoughtfully steer away from your revved up, frenzied, and far too often scripted life? Then welcome to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith, where he guides you down the road differently traveled by sharing unique experiences with guests who have managed to shift away from a life stuck on cruise control and veered their way into a more authentic and fulfilling one in all sorts of interesting and kind of remarkable ways. Get ready to Vroom Vroom Veer with your differently traveled road chauffeur, Jeff Smith. Christine Whitmore. Did I say that right? No, it's Christine Whitmarsh. Yay! (laughs) AKA Christine Inc. I'll I'll edit out the more part. (laughs) (laughs) Say Christine Inc. Whitmarsh. There you go. Christine Whitmarsh. I usually look at my notes, but I was being lazy. Okay. So you are at, well, thank you. Let me see, let me say my, uh, my actual thing that I always say. Thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. How's it going? <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, oh, it's always going well. This is, this show is already a laugh riot. So I can't wait to see where we go from here. Yeah. And we haven't even started recording yet. So that's awesome. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you are at Christine dash Inc. That's the ink that you write with.com. So tell us a little bit briefly about what you're most excited about over there at the Ink Agency. Oh, I'm excited about everything. I have the most amazing authors. I am a book coach and ghostwriter. Right. And my great number one passion in the world is turning people who never had an inkling, pun intended, inkling. that they could become an author yeah. and they could barely even see themselves as writers. And they come to me because they think they want to hire me as a ghostwriter. But I'm so passionate about my book coaching services and skills that I've obtained attained over 20 years that I'm just like, I can turn you into an author in six months. And I do. And it's so exciting. It's it usually hits them about halfway through the process, about three months in, they look at all the words in the manuscript and they say, Oh my God, I'm an author. (laughs) It's magic. So that's my greatest happened again. Yeah. And my, my, my niche focus, I work with, you know, business authors, fiction authors and everything, but my niche focus and number one passion is memoir because essentially I believe that every book is a memoir, believe it or not. Okay. Confuses some people because genre wise on Amazon, not every book is a memoir, but I believe that every book by virtue of the fact that an author is bringing their life, their unique perspectives, their voice into it is a memoir. Cause that's what a memoir is. You're sharing your life stories to inspire right. and, and help others. So I believe every book is a memoir, but I specifically coach people on memoir memoirs. I get it. Yeah. As a, as a lifelong reader, you as you're reading a novel, right? And and you'll know this, right? Do you like sci-fi? Oh God, yes. See, so uh, when every every sci-fi book novel, even if it's a like a long ass series, right? There's this moment where the author all of a sudden everybody's off the stage, 
and they pontificate. <laughs> this is why I wrote this book to tell you these words, right? Yes. That, yes. that happens in nearly every good sci-fi book I've ever read, right? So you're right. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> and you find, I mean, that, that's how books are born. That's how books are formed. Right. Is it starts with that little kernel. kernel. <laughs> of, 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 and usually for an author, it starts with like a weird what if question, like what if da, 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 da. So what yes. you're describing is the moment when you come across the original statement that you know, really they, they created a book around that statement. And that's really cool when you can identify that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like, oh, okay. Now uh, get off your soapbox and get back now to the I know adventure. Why you wrote this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, now I, mean, I know really, why you wrote this book. <laughs> they really just wrote the sentence and then they came, you know, what if da, 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 da. And then the next moment is, oh, how am I going to get there? Yeah. Now I have to write a whole story around it. Oh. Exactly. That's the, that's the work. <laughs> yeah. The idea is the easy thing. <laughs> oh, everybody is on, go to Hollywood. Everybody has a hundred screenplay ideas a minute in Starbucks out there. <laughs> Roger that. Okay. So yeah. before we get into your Vroom Vroom Veer life story, which we always do because this is Vroom Vroom Veer and, uh, and it's fun because you, you wrote a book. What was the name of the book again? Say the power of the curve, the power of the curve. right? And she's showing it to me. <laughs> if you're on audio, right? Um, so, and then when when you read that um, the description of Vroom Vroom Veer, you're like, ah, that's the same thing as me. And my the power book. of the curve. <laughs> that's right. He's just using he's using super cool alliteration to say the power of the curve. Right. Yes. <laughs> I can't take credit for the alliteration. I hired branding people. They're much ah. smarter than me. Yes. <laughs> Well, they're very good. And V they is are really very underused. Good. V is an underused letter. So good job. Good job on them. Yes. I was actually kind of anti vroom vroom veer until they had to talk me into it. But now that I have it, I love it. So okay. but before we get into your vroom vroom veer story, I'm gonna take a sip of water. Yep. And then I'm gonna tease some stories from the Hollywood years, I guess. <laughs> Apparently, those are my funniest uh, life chapters. Yeah, the, the Hollywood the Hollywood trilogy is so we're gonna get like three stories from Christine Inc. Uh, one is the Flaming Gypsies, so we have to pay off these now. Don't let me forget uh, the Flaming Gypsies, Poker Face Sledgehammer. I love these, and the Dude. Yeah. Okay. So. Lebowski. Yeah, yes, the dude. So that is the inspiration of the dude from The Big Lebowski. Okay, yes. all right. So now we have thoroughly teased the audience and they're like mad that we're not talking about those things now. Okay, so let's go back in time and talk about your childhood. Yes, now that all those things, the, the clocks are going wild. And <laughs> all right, and so what was it like uh, growing up? Let's, let's start with where did you grow up? I grew up in Auburn, Massachusetts, which is right outside of Worcester. I don't know how familiar you are. There's three major cities in Massachusetts. Out west, there's Springfield. In the middle, there's Worcester. Out east, there's Boston. So Worcester's the middle one. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. You don't sound like a, a that area. You don't have any sort of accent at all. I My husband differs. Well, it begs to differ sometimes. It comes out. I, I would say, like, <laughs> put me put me at Fenway with a, you know, with a hot dog and a beer. It'll it'll come out. <clears throat> Understood. Yes. I'm from Upper Peninsula, Michigan. So we all sound either Canadian or from Minnesota. That's what that's the sound. I say about and everybody thinks I'm Canadian. It's very strange. I don't know. Yeah. No, it sounds like uh, my touch phrase for my accent is uh, I ain't going to pay no $2 for a corn muffin that's half dull. (laughs) 
but that's actually Minnesotan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That. Yeah. So what was it like growing up in, what did you say it was? Worcester? Auburn, Massachusetts. Auburn. Yeah. What was, what was childhood 15, like? 15,000 people. So when I, okay. I went to, which means when I went up to college later on at University of Rhode Island, that was a population upgrade to the town that I grew up in. We didn't even have a movie theater in Auburn. You had to go to Worcester to do anything. Wow. And yeah, okay. super small, super small town. Right. And so I, you know, hid in the basement and read books and wrote stories while every, all the other kids, you know, I was like, like this weird albino child that was in the basement writing stories and reading and all this while everybody else had a normal childhood. <laughs> what, what, what was that basement like? Was it scary? Oh, no, it was really cool. It was, okay. it was finished and we had a wood stove down there. It was, it was oh, like a nice. study. It was like, if you oh, picture like yeah. the kind of like typical, like in a novel, you know, the old study with the roaring fire and, you know, very like comfortable. wood paneling and things yes. like, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Nice. When yeah. I was at my first house where I grew up, I don't know why, but I remember the walls were made of stone. Like, because that's where, what was there when they dug the hole to make the house. So it was scary. <laughs> I don't know why I'm like, like the Flintstones. Like <laughs> It was, it was weird. I asked my mom about it and she was like, yeah, well that was there and it was okay. So they just sort of built the basement in there and the rocks were there too. And they built around them. I was like, yeah. Ugh, okay. <laughs> I mean, you're saying stone and I'm still picturing the Flintstones, but sure. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but I, I remember like loving hanging out in that first basement, but it was, I didn't want to be down there alone or ever at night because it seemed scary. I loved our basement. <laughs> I was just That was your hangout. Reading yeah. it. I mean, I think I went outside and played with the children, the other children uh, once in a while, but I mean, see, I'm the child that like, I was, I've been writing since I was seven years old because I come from wow. like my whole dad's side of the family are all writers or sports okay. writers. Right. They covered the Red Sox and the Patriots are all like big Boston sports writer guys. My father, that's my grandfather, amazing. and like that. Yeah. And it's funny. My mom's side of the family is all entrepreneurs and business people. So I have a writing business. <laughs> and uh, Kind of makes sense. So, yeah. So I, I would give, I would write short stories and give them as gifts to family members. So everybody, you know, gives grandma, you know, robe and slippers. And I would give grandma like weird short stories about like children and a haunted house. Here, wow. Happy birthday, grandma. <laughs> it's a scary story to give you nightmares, Grandma. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, okay. So what were you like in, say, high school? I was still a little the nerd. Adult. I was a little adult. I ah. was like the adult who ran the school. I was uh, way ahead of my time, really probably annoyed everybody I was around, but I was the one that they put in charge of everything. I And here's a great example of like, my rapport with the teachers is, you know, cause I was in charge of every, like if they wanted something done, like the yearbook, the newspaper, the school play, they wanted something done. It's like, well, have Christine do it. At least we know it'll get done. <laughs> and so, which meant that I never, I was the kid that I didn't have to go to gym class or study halls, or I didn't have to do anything that I considered non-productive. Oh, wow. That's I had, cool. I was running the school. So I was very busy being the you know CEO student of the school. <laughs> so I was walking down the, I was walking That's down great. a hallway I was walking down a hallway one day and the substitute teacher who didn't know who I was, I mean, this is like the most egotistical story. I was like, do you know who I am? The substitute <laughs> teacher, this poor, this poor girl, she was a, a just a teaching student at the local community college. She had no idea who I was. And she came out, young lady, where's your hall pass? And I just, I didn't even know what a hall pass was because no one had ever asked me to have one. Like, what? And we were just kind of having a discussion. One of the other teachers came out and said, you know, what's the commotion out here? What's the problem? And the student teacher, she doesn't have a hall pass or whatever. Teacher says, Oh, that's Christine. You don't need to worry about her. And then he waved me on the way. And the student teacher was like, what just happened here? 
Honestly, yeah, I was gonna. I was thinking like she was gonna say something like, "No, no, that's Christine. She kind of works here." Yeah, I mean, I, no, Mr. Mon, it was Mr. Mongilio. He was the math teacher and the driver's ed. Mr. Mongilio, and he came out. He says, "Oh, no, that's Christine. You don't worry about her." Wow, big, you know, big balding dude. Like, yeah, that's Christine. That's Christine. You don't need yeah. to worry yeah. about her. Like Don Corleone. <laughs> Don Corleone comes out and waves me off. <laughs> okay, so. That's awesome. So thanks for that. Um, yeah. So the, the the curve in the book, the power yes. of the curve, had something to do with your spine. So talk yes. a little bit about that whole thing. Like, what was it like? What was your life like in relation to the spine thing before surgery, during surgery, after surgery? Let's get into that. Well, my father had the spine thing, so we were always looking for it. But it was crazy because it just curved so fast. Just I, I think that happens in in females the way hormones and growth and adolescence okay. works for females. Right. And it curved so fast. It went from like totally like super straight at age fourteen to all of a sudden it was I think like by the time they first diagnosed it when I was sixteen years old, it, it was like sixty eight degrees or something like that, which is funny because that's what it is today. You know, previewing the end of the story. But it, it curved so fast, and my ribs were twisting around, Ooh. and it wasn't like brace. You know, having a brace or any kind of, it was just like the surgery is the only option or else you're just going to keep twisting around and, and then die. So basically you'll be in a wheelchair by the time you're 30. So, um, yikes. It, yeah, it, it, it progressed really quickly, but I was, you know, an obnoxious, does this, does this thing have a name that you're yeah, scoliosis? Yes. Okay. Your scoliosis. So, but I was an obnoxious child and I want to graduate in my high school class. So I didn't have the surgery at 16. I felt like I wanted to get more living out of the way in case something happened. So age 16 was a diagnosis so I, you know, finished high school and then, you know, when I did my first year of college at the University of Rhode Island right, and had the surgery at age 19. Well, by in those three years, the curve had gone from 68 degrees to 116 degrees of combined S curve. So it, that's, I don't, I don't, I don't do math, but that ridiculous. doesn't sound good. Yeah. When, when you hear, you probably heard people say, oh, I have scoliosis or I was diagnosed with scoliosis. They're gen if you've ever heard people say these things, it's not like a normal conversation, but when you hear people say that, you know, they have scoliosis, they know someone with scoliosis, they're generally talking about curves that are like under 30 degrees, maybe like 20 to 40 degrees. 116 is life-threatening. 116, the ribs were twisted around. One leg was four inches shorter than the other. One hip was much, it was, it was life-threatening at that point. I couldn't even stand for more than 10 minutes without being in agonizing pain. 116 is one of the more severe cases they'd ever seen. Yikes. Yeah. So in retrospect, in retrospect, maybe you waited too long. Is that, did yes. that did, did, I don't know. No, I'm asking. I'm not right, guessing. No, I'm, I'm asking. Yeah. yeah, no, I, um, I was, I was a very stubborn, obnoxious child. Well, because everybody kept, you know, putting me in charge of everything and telling me I was good. That didn't help the childhood ego, but no, I'm glad I did what I did because I, I went off to college and I did get some things underway, but you know, fact is by time it got to the point where it was 116 degrees, the surgeon gave me three odds going into the surgery. He said, even, even thirds, one third of a chance you're going to be okay. One third of a chance you're going to be a quadriplegic, which is paralyzed from the neck down. Wow. One third of a chance you're going to die. You're not even survive the surgery. Oh my goodness. But 19, I was, I think my attitude helped because I said, eh, I'll be fine. <laughs> and tell me that, I mean, mind over matter, that's a thing. I it's didn't totally a thing. But on the operating table, all of those things happen. So for the first thing that happened is they straightened my spine so much because they really wanted to straighten it as much as they could. Okay. That they ended up paralyzing me. So then they had to shorten the rod and straighten it less, 
and unparalyzed me. Well, at that point, the surgery had gone on for so long. I'd been under anesthesia for so long. And I was like 110 pounds that I went into, you know, respiratory arrest, you know, not breathing and cardiac arrest, no heartbeat. So I went, I, you know, I died on the table. So all the Yikes. things interesting, because all the things that he predicted going in happened to me, but then we got to the th third, third, which is, and I ended up okay, but it was, you know, it was, you know, so you got all three, and, yeah. you got all three, all at, in one surgery. Yeah. It was a heck wow. of a time. You I mean, then I was in the ICU for You died, and then you lived. Yep. And That's amazing. Heck of a time. You're, you're kind of like me, you know, like when people say, do you want uh, cherry? Do you want chocolate? <laughs> or do you want vanilla? I yeah. always say yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly that, but like with tubes and, and anesthesia. Death, par paralysis, and living. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You okay. know, if you think like learning how to walk again, you know, little minor life issues. <laughs> so, okay. So let's talk about like waking up and how, how were you like in good spirits, bad spirits? No, it was not good spirit. I was in a lot of pain. I don't remember waking. I was in the ICU and I don't remember that. I was on a respirator. It, you know, it just, it, okay. it just, Horrible. It was a very, it pretty, was a very pretty horrible. Yes. It was a rocky time, but I mean, the, I remember the first time I stood up, which is really interesting because I gained three inches of height from when I wow. laid down. And then the next time I stood up and everything in the room was in a different place than it was when I laid down. Wow. Imagine like you yeah. lay down and, and then the next time you stand up again, you're three inches taller. That would wig you out. That was very interesting. <laughs> and I said, Oh, the center of gravity, having this giant titanium rod, it, it's still there the length of my back. Yikes. And then the center of gravity completely changed. So I, I remember going to the swimming pool and I just went and I just like, all of a sudden I just like sunk backwards. So I was like, oh, there's, a, there's something bringing me down. <laughs> <laughs> so um, How was, long, how long did you have to rehab? It was, I mean, this was pretty much, I mean, the surgery I think was in like May of 92. This was pretty much my 92. I had to take a semester off from college. I mean, 1992 was, you know, restoring enough function to be functional. Wow. To go back to college. A yeah. whole and, year of and, rehab. Well, the physical therapy surgery was in May and right. it was, and, and yeah, I went back to school in January of 93 and university of Rhode Island, by the way, is built on a 90 degree slant. So I didn't have to just be functional. I have to be like super functional. And then in the winter, you know, you, you walk up the hill and you, with icy and you, you walk up four steps and you fall back too. So I had to be super <laughs> functional in order to go back to that school that is built. Wow. On wow. Yeah. Okay. And you got all of your function back. Yeah. Oh, better than it was before. I mean, I, before I was all twisted up and in back pain and I was right. much better than I was before. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a story that yes. you learned a lot. <laughs> oh my God. Well, and it's weird. The lessons didn't come until I wrote my memoir later on. And then I really, which was like a few years ago. So it took right. a couple of decades for me to really internalize. And this is what I do with my book coaching clients when I help them write their memoirs. You, so you don't really, I think, internalize all the lessons you've learned while you're living them. You really have to reflect on them later. And this is why totally. the memoir writing process is such a passion for me right. because I'm working with my clients and they're internalizing lessons from like 20, 30 years ago. And they're like, <clears> I never <throat> saw that. It's like, well, you're having to write it in a book, which is not just writing it. It's reliving you know, it. <laughs> it's reliving it. And it's also dissecting it and developing it into a flow. Like, you know, the whole process of writing a book is so much more than writing. So they, they go through that whole process and they're just like, I never even saw that until now. Yeah. You're dissecting is the best word. You're yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, you get another opportunity to go in there and own your stuff kind of thing, <laughs> right? And see it from, right? and see it from yeah. a completely different camera angle that you, totally. when you're in the moment and then when, when you're you in it, it, yeah, you don't yeah. really, all you're doing is responding, reacting kind of, yeah. 
And yeah, like an actor is going to see see a scene completely different than the director and the and the audience see it. Yeah, totally. So when you go back and review it, and you maybe like try to visualize it as you yourself in like a third person perspective sort of thing, yeah. and then you look at yourself and go, "Oh yeah, I was stupid," <laughs> or well, whatever. I mean, you know, the first thing I realized is that nursing was not like this random you know initial career decision for me because the room room beer just is that room room. I was before the scoliosis. I was heading down this path of becoming a journalist, being a writer, being a I, be the next. My mom said you should be the next Barbara Walters and everything like that. Oh wow! And then all of a sudden the scoliosis happened, and I basically became a you know a chronic like professional patient for three years in the medical system. I, I think I was wearing a bracelet for three years because of all the, the testing and just all the things that happened. From like 16 to 19. 16 to 19 to right. lead up to that surgery. You don't just like walk in and say, I'll take that surgery. That's major. I'll major have surgery. that surgery now. I've been screwing so, around for the last three years. No. So the first kind of, <laughs> yeah. So the first, like this really big curve happened where I was going to be a writer. I was going to be a writer. Everybody in town thought I was going to, I was, I was the writer. Everybody just knew I was going to be a writer. And it's like, right. I'm going to be, a, I'm going to be a nurse. And the whole town, what? And my family right. and wow. friends, every, and they didn't understand that. And I don't even think I understood that decision because I'm very good at rationalizing things and making it make sense. And just hmm. saying, well, nursing makes sense because it, you're always going to have a job as a writer. How are you going to make a living as a writer? Well, uh, I figured out a way. <clears throat> yeah, uh, right. But how am I going to make it? And I just, you know, justified and rationalized and rationalized. But writing my memoir, I'm just like, I was a professional patient for three years feeling completely out of control and out of control. You can probably see is not a good look for me being in control of the whole high school and being in control. Right. <laughs> so being a patient, being a patient, I really wasn't in control of my situation. So becoming a, you know, veering off and becoming a nurse and having that change in career path, that was my way of regaining control back. That was one of the things uh, I learned while writing my memoir. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you started maybe identifying with the nurses that you were, interacting with all the time and sort of like it wasn't really identified it was totally a control issue with me i think it was my okay. way of taking control of my situation taking control back interesting becoming a nurse and becoming a nurse made at least thinking about becoming a nurse gave yeah, you some measure like of the, control yeah. you yeah. were a nurse for a year for about a year year and a half and i was a student wow. nurse and an emt longer than i was a nurse but yeah a year and i said oh i don't like this at all <laughs> you sound like me <laughs> <laughs> this is like this is not a good career choice. Once the once the you know all the motivations kind of wore off that led me into it, and I realized I was a nurse. I was like, oh no, I don't like this. Right. But it's really funny. The thing I love the most about nursing, which carries over to my my job today as a memoir book coach, I loved hearing patients and patients' family stories. And that should have been an early, that was an early sign where it's like, all I wanted to do was just hang out in their room and listen to stories. And it's like, oh, you actually have to like take care of them too. You can't just sit there talking to them all day. <laughs> like, oh, but they're so cool and interesting. And I want to hear their life story. Oh, I had a, patient, yeah. I had a, a hospice patient that went to junior high school with Albert Einstein. She referred to him as Al. What? So those what? were early roots of being a memoir person. How could you and, not and, like, just like camp out and talk to them? I did. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> that's this is why I wasn't a very good nurse because I just wanted to hang out, camp out and talk to them. Yeah. Can I go get a bottle of booze? <laughs> like, you actually have to take care of patients. Like, Damn it. Oh, and then I had a lady who was one of the nuns in The Sound of Music. What? Yeah. Was it? Was, was she the climb every mountain nun? That would be No, awesome. she wasn't the main oh. nun. She was one of the, okay. the side nuns. Oh. <laughs> I, that was my favorite part of that movie, the climb every mountain moment. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Very uh, yeah, <laughs> she, was, she, was, she was one of the she was one of the other nuns, but um, right. That oh, that's hot. fine. Okay, so let's let's see where were we? <laughs> I, I think know. we got over. Okay, so now 
you, you, you finish your surgery, you go back to college, and then you graduate, you become a, a nurse, at least a student nurse, right? No, no. At that point, when nurse you graduate and, and you take the boards, you become a nurse nurse. Okay. I didn't really see here. So I never really enjoyed being a student nurse, which should have really been a red flag that maybe right. being a nurse nurse wasn't going to be awesome. Okay. But it took, you know, sometimes I'm a little slow because I get wrapped up in, there's a, there's a line I say in my book, denial and determination are two sides of the same coin. So sometimes I get, so, <laughs> sometimes I get so determined that there's a state of denial about what I'm being determined about. Totally. I think we all get, that's one of the many, Yeah. I think I'm pretty, pretty good at letting go, but yeah, I, you know, we all still get stuck. Yeah. We get stuck on, you know, uh, what do they call vroom, it? Vrooming, like, a very busy, vr- yes, very busy, busy vrooming, vrooming. Don't tell me about yes. reasons to veer off because right, I'm, right. I'm in room room mode. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have many examples myself. <laughs> yeah, <I'm sure. laughs> Hence your show. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So let's, how did you start? writing and start the business of being, you know, the, the memoir writer, the ghost writer, how did that, what did give us well, the super, the, the superhero origin story of Christine dot dash Inc. Well, there's an eight year gap in between quitting nursing and, and writing that involves Hollywood and acting and all. Oh, well, let's get into that. <laughs> yeah, After we, can, I, we can't, we can't skip over the good stuff. Oh yeah. After <laughs> I left nursing and then we'll do your three cues whenever you want them. But sure. Like, when of I course. Left, when I left nursing, I said, what do I do now? And I had a roommate at the time and she said, well, you know, you could just be the, do the stereotypical, stereotypical cliche and become an, a, you know, an actress, a starving, a, you know, a starving actress, waitress kind of person. So I was like, okay, I'll be the starving actress, waitress. So I just did like odd jobs and things like that. But at that point I was taking acting classes and I didn't really enjoy acting that much, but it really brought me back to the love of writing, which I'd really abandoned for nursing because of that whole, you know, very rational conversation I had in my, you know, 18 year old mind that, well, we can't make a living writing. Writing is not a responsible career. It's funny. Like most people like get that stuff from adults. I had like some weird inner adult in my head that was telling me that writing is irresponsible when all the actual adults around me were just like, why aren't you being a writer? So I had this like weird authoritarian <laughs> voice that was like me. It was very strange. Uh, but I had people, one of those too, yeah. when I was a yeah. kid. So yeah. I, I, I was like, I can tell a very sad story about like me and all the guys, right? Our big coming of age trip for high school in our senior year was to go uh, drive all the way to where the hell was it? Somewhere <laughs> in Wisconsin, close to Chicago. Okay. Uh, Alpine Valley is the the name of the concert venue, mm-hmm. and it was the Boston concert, the band oh. Boston, right? Yeah, yeah. So you, you probably know them. <laughs> A little familiar, yeah. So we saw we saw Boston in concert, right? And we got really, really drunk and it rained and there was mud. And then we brought like, I don't know how many girls back to the hotel room, right? (laughs) In our high school stupor. And um, yeah. And you know what I did? I went to the other room and went to bed. Yeah. Because I was trying to be the responsible guy and I didn't want to be hung over driving the next day. That That might have been you. (laughs) Totally. That's totally my choice. I mean, it's funny, like the idea of like bringing all these girls back is like, did you think you were in the band? (laughs) Did you have groupies? (laughs) One of the guys brought one of the girls into the other bed in the room that I was trying to sleep in and, you know. Yeah. Did things (laughs) (laughs) while I was trying to sleep. That from Lots of regret. Like the scene in Forrest Gump. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I would say, you know, if I could go talk to that 
younger self, I'd say, get up, go party. <laughs> Yeah. I, yeah. My younger self was my, was my older self. And now I'm a child. That's a whole thing right there. Oh. But ultimately, you know, just to bring it back, like acting and because I went to like a conservatory level of acting, cause you know, I have to do everything at the, the highest level. You actually went to acting school. I, oh yeah. Acting big, big time acting studio out in LA and wow. where, okay. all the, where we did a lot of improv and a lot of, uh, you know, creating our own scenes. And that of course brought me back to my original passion of writing. So then I went from acting to screenwriting, directing, and, you know, so just wow. kind of did like the Hollywood route. There were just a lot of screenplays, which was really fun because all the screenplay writing experience and I had a really great mentor who was the director of the movie waiting and he helped produce goodwill hunting and things like that. Oh, wow. So I, I just got some really good screenwriting education. And that ultimately, you know, brought me over to ghostwriting, which is, you know, like there's a whole like very, I, I got into ghostwriting by probably the most coincidental random way anybody could start a career. Those are the best veers. Yes. Yes. This is, this is a great one. So I was, you know, broke starving actress, which was really exciting for my mom since she paid for a bachelor of science and nursing degree for me to bro- be a broke starving actress. <laughs> <laughs> she was so excited about that. So she was trying to give me like being very helpful, but without being passive aggressive about it and just going, so here are some ways you could make money. <laughs> I'm in my little crappy LA apartment. And she's like, have, she says, well, you're really good at typing and you're, you're in LA around all those big colleges. So why don't you place a typing ad where maybe students will pay you to type the term paper. And then I don't have to keep giving you money because maybe you can make some of that. So I put an ad in all UCLA, USC, all the local college papers to yep. just, I will type your, I will type your term paper for you. Right. I'm thinking, you know, that's going to break. Oh yeah. This is, I'm a millionaire this way. Uh, <laughs> so I placed that ad. And one of the ads was in the UCLA student newspaper. So, you know, this kid, one of the students there, he brought it home to mom and da- his mom and dad's house and just kind of like tossed the newspaper haphazardly on, you know, mom and dad's kitchen table. This is a Hollywood guy, it turned out to be. Right. With the classified thing up with my ad facing up on the kitchen table. And dad walks by the kitchen and he saw, he sees my ad and he's just like, well, that's really interesting. He calls me and he says, well, you know, he says, I, I, he says, I don't have a term paper, uh, but I have been trying to write a book for about 20 years now. And I have just a whole trunk and like a vault full of notes and everything like that. Could I hire you to just type those notes up for me? Wow. And he turned out to be a celebrity acting coach and kind of a big deal in his own right. So what a typing job, all of a sudden he saw that, you know, we got to talking and he saw that I had abilities that went beyond typing. So (laughs) then it it became editing, then it became ghostwriting. And that was how I ended up getting my very first book ghostwriting job through a typing ad in the UCLA. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Did you ever get any term paper writing jobs? No, I, I just got that one, which is great because now I have a ghostwriting career now because of that ad. But uh, yeah, that that's was, amazing. So when other, go, it's really funny because other ghostwriters and students and you know young people that want to kind of you know do what I do and you know be who I am and everything like that, like what's your advice for getting a career in ghostwriting? And she's like, well, <laughs> I, I have the most interesting way I got into this career ever, so I don't know if I'm the person to give you advice. <laughs> don't ask me. <laughs> I have no uh, idea. <laughs> just wait, wait for random weirdness to happen in your life and go with it yeah keep trying really hard yeah and, and keep that. learning yes the power curve. of the curve right right go with the curves don't don't worry so much about the destination don't Later yeah don't worry about the vrooming so much I mean, just, I mean, right. if we are talking about like advice I would give to young people I know this is just you didn't ask for it but I'm just gonna you know yeah, about, please that want to kind of you know be writers or be, or be anything creative or whatever it's 
you know, develop your strengths, play to your strengths and don't obsess about the destination. Just kind of see the curves that are in front of you and see how you can find power and strength in them and just ride them and don't resist them. Yeah, that's good advice for sure. Yeah. Focusing on the strengths is way better than trying to make yourself a perfectly, you know, like Mm -hmm. all of these things are bad about me and I need to get better at skill building. You know, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with skill building, but don't think you have to be really good at everything. Yeah, you and don't. develop, and yeah. the important part is develop yeah. your strengths. So if you want to be a writer, right. write every day. Right. Shocking thought, I know. No, it doesn't mean, you know, um, doing a report and, and hoping for a call from Steven Spielberg and, right. you know, obsessing and, and, and going out and, you know, drinking at clubs and calling it networking. No, no, no. If you want <laughs> to be a writer, you need to write. You need to read books about writing. You you yeah. need to actually practice and your craft every day. Practice not a, get a habit. Yeah. Yeah. Not exactly. You'd think it would be like a daily writing habit. Right. Uh, a daily. I've heard yeah. that before. <laughs> I think I've heard that. I think I, I may have heard that, heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, develop the skill. I think sometimes, you know, aspiring creatives, they sometimes forget about, I've know, got a story that you, you learn. might, you might like about mm-hmm. me and writing. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, just as I was thinking about having you on my podcast, I was remembering that I kind of don't like writing anymore. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, I know. So then, uh, then I was, I remembered why. Yeah. Because I had some of that perspective that you were talking about. Uh-huh. And I was trying to figure out where is that? Why don't I really like writing anymore so much? Yeah. Right. As a mm-hmm. practice even. Um, so the story is, is I was trying to like blog for the longest time and, and blogging is writing, you know? So yeah. I was writing a lot. Right. And thinking, okay, this is how I'm going to make money and, and have a life of freedom. And at the same time, it was the first time I was really alone uh, and isolated because my wife was working and I wasn't. Mm-hmm. So then I was, I, it turns out isolation and loneliness is really bad for your health. Yeah. And, and I got depressed yeah. and I was writing. <laughs> so yeah, now it's those bad guys, for your health, but kinda, sometimes it's good for your writing. It's totally no, no, no. I, I'm not. Yeah. So there's a difference between lonely, isolation, sad, depressed, mm-hmm. and like positive solitude is something yes. that you need. So positive solitude is amazing yeah. when you can go out and say, you know, text a buddy and say, let's go get a, a coffee or let's do lunch. Right. Yeah. As long as you still have the balance, you're fine. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> and in my brain, like writing and isolation and loneliness and depression all got wrapped into the same ball. And that's mm-hmm. why I think I kind of didn't want to write anymore. Right. Yeah. Because I equated it to being lonely and sad. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Exactly. They got tied up into a rubber band ball of sadness. Correct. We train our we train our brain of, you know, how we want to associate things, but that's a whole other concept. So now I because I I, I was like, oh, okay. So writing's not so bad. <laughs> I can write some more. Right. So that thanks. <laughs> yeah, you have to write your way out of writing. That's a whole, I mean, well, I can yeah. advice all day. <laughs> For whatever reason, you know, Pretty just much. listening to your three minutes of your podcast. I was like, yeah, all right. That's why probably I don't like writing anymore. Anyway, let's get into some of these stories before we run out of time. Because we're in the Hollywood phase. We are in the Hollywood phase. Right. Okay. So the flaming gypsies (laughs) go. Yeah, That's when I was producing an independent film and we were filming one night at Doc Weiler beach in Los Angeles. I know Doc Weiler. Yep. 
I know. Yeah, it's, it's in El Segundo. Everybody else. It has a direct flight line to LAX, which is really fun because, you know, whenever, and the planes come in, we were filming, you know, like late at, you know, late at night. And yep. just fun fact about Dockweiler, the planes come out from the ocean to LAX about 2 a.m. in the morning and they fly like so low that it's just like everybody duck because you might get the cap. <laughs> The FedEx, all the FedEx and the UPS planes and they fly super low and they come in from the ocean. So like the, like I seriously, like most of the night was the sound guy going, hold for sound, hold for sound, holding for sound. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The FedEx plane tries to decapitate people. Right. Uh, so that was, but it was a really windy, freezing cold night. And of course, so windy is the key word here because the scene, one of the scenes that we were shooting was the big flaming gypsy scene where there's going to be, <laughs> just so weird, a bonfire in the middle and there is going to be an outer ring of flaming tiki, tiki torches. And the inner ring is extras, like dancing. You know, we, we hired like a, prof, a professional dance troupe. And they were going to wear these very flowy gypsy garbs. And they were going to dance in a circle around the bonfire. Again, it goes bonfire, he, dancers with flowy garments, and outer tiki ring of tiki, flaming tiki torches. So it's just like, well, let's Not try dangerous at all. Yeah. And I'm the producer. I'm going, I don't know if our contingency insurance is going to cover lighting extras on fire. Um, <laughs> right. It's not going to end well. So, <laughs> so I just was, I mean, I, I think I, I was just praying the whole time. I'm just like, please don't let people get lit on fire. This is not going to be very good for the movie at all. Right. Uh, we don't right. want to light the extras. You want You only want to do that on purpose. Yeah, don't light the fire. Don't light the, <laughs> don't light the don't light the uh, the gypsy dancers on fire. Nobody caught on fire, but that was probably the most nerve wracking moment of my entire brief uh, independent producer slash director career. Scary. Like, don't don't light the extras on fire. It's not good for publicity. It's one of those. Uh, did you have that moment where you're sort of like looking at it and you're going, "Oh, it's really windy. There's lots of fire." Yeah, and I that, had and a lot of like, moments. Like, <laughs> <laughs> All I was doing, I just was, I, I, if you can have like, you know, a 45 minute heart attack, that's what was happening. Wow. Okay. All right. So let's, let's do poker face sledgehammer. Uh, okay. So back in nursing, I was, this was really funny is that I was very expressive and a creative person. And at one point, I think I was in the sophomore nursing clinical and went, my instructor pulled me aside and she's a very serious nursing person. This is the other reason I didn't get along with nurses very well. Like, and I, I didn't fit in very well because I'm not a very serious person as you probably tell. And she pulled me aside and she said, Christine, you have to work on your poker face. You're, you're too expressive and you're scaring the patients. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So, <laughs> you can see, I've, I've had this advice before. Yes. Yeah. Your listeners can't see, but you've seen the expressions like for this entire interview, this is just right. how I am. And I've been this right. way since birth. So she said, you need to develop a poker face. So I worked very hard to develop my poker face and be a serious nurse that didn't scare the crap out of the patients. And you right. know, so it's probably a good skill for a nurse. Well, I apparently did a very good job at this too good of a job because I got into acting school a few years later and my acting teacher pulled me aside and he said, Christine, I have just, you know, I have just one bit of advice for you. Cause we were doing like improv in the moment and you're emotionally reacting to your scene partner and you're just in the flow and the emotions and the things. Yeah. And I was standing there just like, there was an, as an exercise from um, Stanislavski and Meisner. These were like the Kings of, you know, acting from way back in the day where you say, say something and your partner reacts to just anything you're giving them. So it's just okay. like, you have a, you have a blue shirt on. I, I have a blue shirt on and you, you have to like, you know, kind of just react and maybe add some emotion to it, but everything they were giving me, I'd just be like, I have a blue shirt on. It is sunny out. I, mean, I was like an Android. <laughs> I, I took the nursing instructor's advice so well. So my acting teacher pulls me aside and this is so funny. Cause tell me this isn't like a complete like circular story. The acting, he says, I just have one bit of advice for you. He said, Christine, 
you got to take a sledgehammer to that poker face. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's the best. Yeah. Wow. Okay. The poker face is not helping you now. No. So I took a sledgehammer to it and now I'm like this. Well, that's good. The sledgehammer but, worked. Yeah. It, but um, I took the nursing instructor's advice very well. Uh, maybe a little too well. Yeah. And he actually said, he said, you know, a lot of my students, he said, when I'm having this conversation with them, I'm telling them, you know, you have to take a, take a pickaxe to it. No, Christine, you need a sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah. There's poker face sledgehammer. <clears throat> yes. it, it seems like you, uh, you take advice to the extreme sometimes. Yeah. Uh, okay. you, yeah. It's that whole like little perfectionist CEO. High school. Uh, right. It's, it's right. still there. It, it circles back to, Working I'm, I'm in charge here. Okay. <laughs> I'm in charge. I should be a very serious person. Are you where you're supposed to be right now? Oh, sorry. You're a teacher. (laughs) I'm not supposed to be anywhere. I'm I'm an abstract entity in this high school. (laughs) So uh, I'm a big fan of the Big Lebowski and I know the dude abides. So I didn't know there was a real life inspiration of the dude. There is. Okay. And his name is Jeff Dowd, and he is a character. Because uh, does he hang me, out in bowling alleys in no, somewhere? No, in, no, no, he hangs out at indie film festivals because he's a yeah. film promoter, and he he's the one okay. that finds goes around and goes to the festivals and plucks out like the future Blair Witch projects and says this is going to be a hit and makes sure that they get to movie theaters. Oh wow! So he's actually a very big deal. And I and at first when you meet him, you'd be like, all right, this is not you know the dude he's in the bathrobe he's not in the bathrobe in in, in ralph's you know drinking half and half that's not who this guy is oh damn it but when you spend you know a little bit of time with jeff you instantly realize why the cohen brothers and all their genius you're just like oh i totally see the connection now jeff dowd is by far the best natural human storyteller i have ever met in my entire life he's one of these guys where he like holds court well, he did back in the day, this was like late 90s when I lived in L.A. So we go to you go to like a movie screening and afterwards he just holds court and he just is telling these stories and stories and stories. Each one is crazier. And you just sit there and you sit there and you're just totally trying. He's just an amazing storyteller. And then you realize, like, how long have I been sitting on this ottoman? I think it's been like three hours. Like, it just, <laughs> just is like the best, best story. You're just transfixed. You're taken away. Yeah. yeah. And so he just has all these like adventures. So we just kind of like, you know, hung out at like music things and what he just always introduced me to crazy. He just knew like the crazy things where it's like there's like this office building i meet there i want to introduce you to these like famous musicians i can't think of their names they're like the um the 1970s rock and roll guys that had the like that they look like albinos they had the long blonde hair wow twins those guys not nelson from the 80s but the 70s rockers anyway he kept introducing me to people and was it um Belushi was there that night. I, I, I like hanging out with the dude. It, it is like a hallucination, even though you're not on hallucinogenics, because wow. he he just lives in this alternate reality. And that's when I, I think I was like, that's where the Coen Brothers were inspired to create, you know, Jeff Lebowski based on Jeff Dowd. Is that Jeff Dowd? Like he does live in like it's just like you're just meeting people and he's saying things in these conversations, and you're like, I don't know where I am or what's happening right now. <laughs> and I thought this was I thought this an office building, but there's a secret underground club and there's Belushi on stage. And I have no idea what's happening in my life right now. And that is like, that's, that's the element of the dude. But I learned so much about storytelling, just like watching him just hold court for hours, just telling these stories and everybody just sitting there with their jaws dropped. Just my God. That's amazing. Yeah. The the real life dude. The real life dude is, has his own reality altering uh, hey, you hang out with them and you, yeah. you don't, you don't know where you are and you're not, I'm, I'm serious. So you don't need to be on any le- mind altering substances. You right. just kind of lose track of reality. Right, as you right. hang out with him. It, it's, yeah. it's his, it's his vibe field. Yeah. <laughs> it is. So that's, my, that's the dude story. There is a real life. I, I didn't, I thought everybody knew there was a real life dude. I did I not know. No. 
You, you know that the, the, the some lines from the Big Lebowski have leaked into advertising. Oh yeah, oh, I've seen they carried it all over, but that was that, I don't think any. Of so that there's a uh, there's this the essence. There's yeah. a there's a commercial for Rugs USA. Oh yeah! Oh my God, the rug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that and the, rug, man. The, and <laughs> the, the, the lady literally says, "Man, that rug really pulls the room together." <laughs> That's awesome. I know. That is awesome. And no, I don't know. You know, if you're a fan of the show, you're going to pick it up. But right. Yeah. Yeah. Who's yeah. Not a fan of, oh, that movie is just. It's yeah. One of the, it's best. the best. One of my favorites. Yeah. Coen brothers are the best. Yeah. So, they just create like worlds. Like they do, I can. I, I love. Um, what is it? No Country for Old Men all the way up until um, the the guy that we've been following the whole show is similar, summarily dead. And I'm like, okay, I'm I'm quitting now. Good storytelling. <laughs> it was so my um. So that was my hilarious uh, Hollywood years, and those are just the three stories that I that I thought of. Right. So okay. So let's uh, let's talk about the genesis of you. So you write that first book, right? Yeah. The as the Christina Inc. or Christine Inc. Yes. Yes. Sorry. So you write right. this first book. And then did it do well? Did it do bad? How did it go? Oh, he was still working on it when I ended up, you know, going just, you know, more like kind of veers and everything like that. But ultimately the, you know, career veers led me to just taking on more freelance clients like him. And eventually in 2003, my mom being, you know, at this point, she's like a career consultant for me. She said, you know, you have all these freelance clients and don't forget, she's from the entrepreneur side of my family. Ah, So so she's looking. So her inclination is, you know, when you build a business, business. right. I think most moms are, when are you going to get a job with a 401k and and my mom's thing is you are just like your grandfather. Why don't you start a business? So she said, you know, you have all these different freelance uh, clients, she said, why don't you just become a company? She says, you're almost like your own corporation, Christine Inc. And she was talking about ah, incorporated. And I, I changed C. C to a K. Uh-huh. Ah. Ding, ding, Christine Inc. So, I, okay. So, Christine Inc. was born in 2003. So, I've been doing this for wow. a living since That's a long time. But yeah. um, the company became a, a thing in 2003. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, you've been at it for a long time. A lot of words. So many a stories. lot of words. So many amazing, amazing stories that I've right. read. And you're up to how? So your podcast. It, tell, talk about your podcast a little I bit. I have a daily podcast for authors. It's meant right. more to be an actionable tool than it is to be like a specific like talky talky podcast. Right, right. And it is called Your Daily Writing Habit. Yourdailywritinghabit.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Right. The average episode is about three to five minutes long, seven days a week. Wow. That's why I up to almost 1,100 episodes now. Wow. Because yeah, it goes fast. <laughs> yeah. And I have interview episodes maybe a few times a month, but the rest of them on average, again, it's meant to be a, a daily actionable writing tool to help you write and finish writing a right. great book. Because as we know, a lot of people are writing books now. So, you know, the key now is quality. You need to, quality prevents invisibility. You need to have a book that stands out of the crowd. Well, a lot of marketers would disagree with me, but the number one thing that is going to help your book stand out is just supreme quality. Right. So it's you know, you need a daily writing habit to make that happen. So a lot of my listeners and I have listeners all over the world, which is wow. so amazing. I get fan mail from I get fan mail from authors in like Kenya and Nigeria saying, I'm writing a book now because of your show, which is such an honor. That's that, amazing. To say that, yeah. Congratulations. So a lot of my thank you. <laughs> that's a lot that's of awesome. my listeners, well, a lot of my listeners, they like to piggyback listening to my show. They use my show almost like an audio like auditory cue so that they schedule time to listen to my little five minute show. And then they schedule like an hour after to work on the book. They said, because we know that 
your, your episode in five minutes is going to get me so jazzed up about writing my book. I need to have that hour scheduled following because all I'm going to want, I'm not going to be able to go back to my normal life. I'm going to have to go write my book. So they'll kind of, you know, they'll schedule it. So <laughs> they listen great. to my show and then they work on their book for an hour and that becomes their daily writing habit. Wow. Yeah. That's handy. It is. <laughs> well, I've learned a lot coaching a lot of people and writing many, you know, probably over a million words at this point that it's, it all comes down to the habit. So I am, like a combination of, you know, whatever your favorite writing instructor is combined with James Clear, like Atomic Habits. So that's really, you know, that, that's my entire brand is helping authors finish writing great books and right. habits are the key to doing that. Right, right, right. It's, it's, it's actionable. Yes. It's, it's, we're going to do works. this. We're doing this. We're going to ship it. Yes. We're going to write it. We're going to edit it. We're going to finish it. And then we're going to ship it. <laughs> yeah, you can't read, yeah. Read it. Reading and talking about writing is not going to get that book finished. No. You actually have to write it, edit it, and ship it. Sit down. Yes. Even and sit down, not not even on the days you don't feel like it, especially on because the days. that's I yes. found out from my whole other area of my life. My aerial, I do circus things. I don't know if you saw. I have an aerial conditioning coach, and wow. I oh yeah, I hang that's upside fun. down. I do Cirque du Soleil things. That's instead of going to the gym, I'm different. Um, as you good can for you. Yeah, that sounds fun. My aerial conditioning coach has taught me. He said it's the days when you train that you absolutely are not feeling it when you're fatigued, when it's just it's not working. That's where you're going to make the most gains. Well, the same thing with a writing habit. It's those days where you absolutely like the last thing you want to do is work on your book. When you fight through those days, you're going to build some really solid writing habit muscles. So really fight through on those days. That's yeah. where you're going to get your biggest gains. Jerry Seinfeld said exactly the same thing because he's got an okay. aerial coach. No, I'm just kidding. Here's <laughs> Does he play circus too? Yes. <laughs> no, he said the same thing, but he was talking about writing. Yeah. So he I'm said, like, I, I yeah, 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 awesome. yeah. He's really, that's his thing was, uh, he was saying like, even on the days that I don't want to write, especially on those, days. especially on those days, mm -hmm. just do it anyway. You know, that, that's your that's, job. That's your yeah. job. And it is your job as, a, as, a, as an author. And when you're writing a book, by the way, you're an author. Okay. So there's a lot of people that don't, they, they, a lot of my clients too, they struggle with the identity of author. Even when they're writing the book, it's like, you're writing a book, you're an author. I know it's not published yet, but you're, you're an author. You're, you're, you'll be a published author when the book is published, but you're an author now you are authoring every day. Right. So let's talk about how people can best get in touch with so Christine Inc. So there is the webpage, Christine-Inc., like the right, the kind you write with, right? Yeah. With a K.com. Gotcha. Yeah. What else? Anywhere on anywhere on social media, just look for Christine Inc. And anywhere Google, you're going to find me. I'm, I'm pretty well branded. Right. And then, you know, there's my podcast, Your Daily Writing Habit. But if you just kind of look up Christine Inc., I-N-K, you're going to track me down. Gotcha. This has been a blast. Yeah, I think so too. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. I, the, the last thing I wanted to say was like, you know, you, you, you talked a lot about collaboration. Mm -hmm. So this whole podcast brand, it was, that was a, a result of a collaboration of basically, you know, you pay the guys and then you hang out on zoom for, I don't know how many weeks and they just ask me questions and we chit chat. Right. The only difference between the podcast and not a podcast was I didn't record it. I should have. <laughs> but at one point I said, no, no, no. What I'm really kind of want to talk about is like, can we have like a midlife non-crisis? And they were like, oh, that's it. <laughs> a midlife non-crisis. Non -crisis. Yes. And they went away and came up with the show. 
That's awesome. Right. And then (laughs) that became broom, broom beer. And I was like, broom, broom beer. No, I don't want to do broom, broom beer. And they're like, no, broom, broom beer. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I mean, I would say that circus is my midlife non-crisis because I didn't pick it up until I'll just do the short version of this until I was 44 and I was just overweight and out of shape really the heaviest in my entire life. And I, I just had tried the gym. I tried the home workout tapes. I would do like exercise for four months, quit for two years. One of those people. And okay. I realized you probably guessed this about me. Fun is a core value. And I realized like, Oh, exercise, <laughs> exercise isn't working for me because it's not fun. And then I came right. across the circus arts, the aerial arts. Like you see circus away. Yeah. I do the hoop. I do the hoop that's on a rope hanging from the ceiling. Oh my goodness. And I, as soon as I discovered it, I said, I am never going to be bored doing this ever. And it's wow. been five years now and I haven't been bored because there's always a new skill to train. There's always, I mean, this just, there's always, I just did a performance. I was actually in a documentary film. They filmed it before they filmed it. The whole film crew came out a few weeks ago and they're putting me in a movie because of my, I mean, don't forget we how this conversation started. Severe scoliosis rod in my back, right. age 44. I'm going to be an acrobat now. So, <laughs> so the movie crew came out. Talk about they, veers. Um, Yeah, big time. So the movie crew came out a few weeks ago and half the day was interviewing me and the other half the day, I did two and a half hours of Lyra of Circus for them, which there was no skin left on the back of my knees by the time we were done. Yikes. Well, good for you. Because you said you're midlife midlife non-crisis. Circus is my midlife non-crisis because it's not a crisis. It's just, it just, it's changed the entire course of my life. Totally. Right. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, just when I say circus, I'm just like, circus. Circus. <laughs> I can tell you're beaming with joy. Yes. <laughs> when, when, when people go to the gym, do they go treadmill? Woo. treadmill. No, no. So no. Kettlebell. I, I, I go to the gym and I, I do go to the gym, you know, to, you know, sustain the circus and nobody looks happy there. You go to a circus studio, everybody's like singing along to Disney songs. And then you go to the gym and it's like, Oh, we, oh. I mean, I can right. Like, right. Brother here. Yes. <laughs> nobody's happy at the gym. Yeah. We get, that's a whole nother show. That'll it be is. show I'll, number two. We'll talk to about come back and I'll, I'll come on as many times as you want. That'd be great. <laughs> All right. Hey, Christine Inc. This has been a blast. Uh, AKA Christine Whitmarsh, <laughs> not Whitmore. Okay. <laughs> You have a good one, and uh, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Don't hang up. I'm going to, but I will stop the recording. Thanks for taking the time to ride along with us on another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. For podcast info and show notes, be sure to head over to vvveer.com. That's triple V double E R.com. Man, that's fun to say. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Vroom Vroom Veer. 